Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Afago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On a vast array of fronts, China is on a far-ranging and coordinated intimidation strategy to force the United States and its allies to back down and allow Beijing to move ahead on its plans to absorb Taiwan and play an even more dominant role in Asia and beyond. And they're convinced that this time, as in the past, Washington will back down and seek accommodation not confrontation. Tests this summer of a fractional orbital bombardment system that would park nuclear or conventionally tipped hypersonic weapons in Earth orbit as a first strike weapon with little warning, construction of hundreds of new land-based intercontinental ballistic missile silos, new nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines, and the reconstitution of land-based weapons testing facilities featuring outlines of U.S. Ford-class aircraft carriers and Arleigh Burke-class destroyers Uh, that are on the hardware side more threatening, Beijing has warned its citizens to begin stockpiling food and other necessities in the event of a national emergency. All of this comes as the Biden administration works successfully to bring allies and partners together to better collectively deter China and counter its influence and intimidation. A new national security, national defense, and Indo-Pacific strategies are in the works. Indeed, a draft NDS is already being briefed out as a nuclear posture review is ongoing. Here to help us answer what China is trying to accomplish and how the United States and its allies must respond are Dr. Tom Mankin, the president and CEO of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be with you. Pleasure to be here, Vago. Uh, Always a pleasure having uh, both of you on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Patrick, I want to start off with uh, you because you and I have discussed this point before and you join us regularly on our weekly Washington uh, roundtable. What are the Chinese trying to accomplish, right? It's not an accident that all this stuff is going on and going on now uh, in the first year of an administration uh, what What is Beijing trying to accomplish and what are the stakes if Washington does not back down uh, as Beijing has come to assume that Washington will? Well, Bago, I have my theories. I mean, first to say that we think their capabilities are relatively clear, um, but their intentions remain intentionally obscure. But for me, um, it's not just the intimidation factor that you've alluded to in, in the prelude here. Um, it's also their advancing real military capabilities. They're doing both. And it's this dialectic that is, I think, at the heart of Chinese thinking. Um, You know, I'm struck by the concept that uh, we often think that peace is the absence of struggle, but they think, you know, actually, peace is the successful harmonization of struggle. And so what the Chinese are doing, not that they're that clever, um, but they're still trying to achieve both political objectives um, over Taiwan, over their near seas, over other objectives internationally, and advance the ball on their military capabilities. So take Taiwan. China's basic goal here is to intensify tensions to achieve the political goal of compelling the United States, Taiwan, Japan, and others to back down, back away from supporting Taiwan, back away from supporting Taiwan independence, as China would define it, um, and at the same time, um, become better uh, and more proficient at offering military capabilities for Beijing to use down the road 
um, and maybe not long down the road, maybe, you know, anytime down the road, right. um, so that they have actual combat military uh, uses. And obviously, the preference there would be they don't need to use the military options, or if they use them, they become a fait accompli, or they become something so swift and short and sharp that uh, we have no time to respond effectively, and we're left with very bad options of having to, uh, you know, uh, harbor the you know, the problem of major escalation with a major power, and that's sort of unthinkable in their mind. Therefore, they win. So that that's I think at the heart of their their thinking. Uh, and and of course, right. I mean, not to not to bring Sun Tzu into the discussion, but the whole focus of Chinese strategy has been to to win without fighting. Right. No, not necessary to break the China. Let's set the table, whether it's diplomatically, politically, or militarily. And the 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 biggest problem of us not reacting as quickly as we should have is we lose that deterrent edge. Right. I mean, it it once they become convinced that our fleeter feeder of clay or our military people won't even get vaccinated. Right. That's not a particularly good sign. Even beyond, you know, before we get to the military capabilities part of this, uh, and and that's what they were trying to work. Tom, um, what? Vago, can stake? I just can I just add a footnote yep, to that, just so you know, our listeners? I mean, one, it's also very Clausewitzian um, in the yeah, sense that, that you know they're yeah. looking for political goals as as part of any military action, but also Sunza was prescient in many ways, but he didn't foresee mutual assured destruction. So I hope we'll get to talk about the fact that nuclear weapons are a factor here. So it's not just that they want to win without fighting. They also don't want to take on a nuclear armed United States. Well, uh, but as Mao once observed, uh, which I think even uh, Stalin at some point was just like, eh, we've got a big population. We can absorb it. I'm sorry, that's very callous, but I'm just going back to history on this. Uh, Tom, what's your sense on how this uh, plays out, right? Um, both I want to get to the long-term strategy part of it, but what happens if this does not work out the way the Chinese think it will, right? I mean, if you're used to getting your way and your adversaries back down or yield to you somehow, it leads you, and, and then if you're really feeling your oats, and in China's case, it really, really is, right? I mean, she has taken very firm control of the party. He has taken what was a relatively open society and has been systemically closing it. And indeed, my concern is that China weakens and as it weakens, as, as other strategists have, have uh, uh, written, right, Hal Brands uh, has, been, has been writing that as well, that they become more dangerous. Like, what's at stake here if a fast-moving China that expects everybody to yield hits the United States and allies and partners who don't yield? Well, thanks, Vago. And uh, you had me at Sunza. So, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then you add, add Clausewitz and, and uh, Mao and Stalin to boot. Wow, it's a... It's a that's a real. Uh, that's a real. It doesn't get any better, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But well, look. I mean, but but actually, to the point, right? So this idea of uh, of, of winning without fighting uh, is uh, tremendously uh, attractive. Uh, I don't deny that uh, the Chinese Communist Party would rather uh, win without fighting, and I think that was actually the the, the whole point of what uh, what Sunzo wrote a couple of millennia ago. I guess, however. You know, uh, the historian in me, as I look back at uh, major, you know, differences uh, of, of interest, uh, actually winning without fighting is pretty rare, right? right. Uh, and so it may, it may be a, a better way to uh, get into a conflict than, than actually achieve, you know, achieve your aims, unless you're willing to, to redefine those aims. So for the U.S., I think, and I think we're already starting to see it, I think, look, first, we, we need to be much more active in communicating what our interests are 
we need to be much more active working with our allies who share interests with us uh, so that we're jointly communicating what those interests are. And we also have to be much more active in thinking about deterrence. You know, I think if we go back uh, to the Cold War, and you know, I'm not, not saying this is a Cold War 2.0, but I think there are things that we can learn. We, we were much more active uh, at times and had to be much more active at times during the Cold War in trying to deter the Soviet Union than we've been you know, in, in, in thinking about communicating our interests or trying to deter Chinese, uh, Chinese aggression in recent years. So I think that's, that's one thing we need to do. I think we also, you know, I think for, for far too long, far too many people have treated uh, the, the prospect of, of conflict with China as a, you know, a hypothetical future, you know, read small number of decades uh, thing that, you know, people should think about. Well, I think we're, we're, we're past that. And I think we need to be actively thinking about uh, what we can do now or in the short term with the capabilities we have or could reasonably have in a very small number of years, uh, that really needs to be the locus of our thinking. Uh, Patrick is the, you know, you've been, uh, you've joined us on the program a couple of times and, and given uh, you've complimented the administration on at least bringing people t together. There is a lot of comparison uh, between, you know, now and, and sort of a 1945, it wasn't until the 1950s that the cold war really got underway. I, I, I think some of that is overwrought. We moved with some, greater speed and alacrity, even if the direction was wrong. This this oncoming bus, you know, we've seen this coming at us for 20 years, right? Um, you know, give, give us a sense on where the administration is. And then I want to go into the strategy, strategy formulation uh, part of this, because we're in the process of working these strategies. How to do these concrete developments now need to be shaping where we end up with 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 these uh, strategies. So, so Patrick, start us off, uh, if, if you will, on how the administration at least is doing at this point in trying to bring people um, together to collectively stand up to China? Well, first they're um, making transparent what China is doing. So um, we've seen various leaks and reports in the press in, in recent months that are now part of the DOD China report to Congress, uh, including the heavy emphasis on ramping up nuclear weapons capabilities, the idea that they're likely to acquire more than a thousand nuclear warheads by the end of the decade. And that at the same time, they're doing this by building three solid fuel ICBM silo fields in Western China. They're introducing MIRVs, you know, they're moving potentially toward a launch on warning posture. They're developing the hypervelocity glide vehicles to evade our missile defenses. All of those strategic capabilities on top of what we can see in terms of the world's largest Navy getting bigger, um, air forces getting more capable, space and counter space and cyber capabilities. Uh, and this is no longer, as Tom was alluding to, you know, a mid-century problem. I mean, this is the 2020s. Um, and so in, in very short order, the China is shaking up this strategic balance of power, military balance of power in this decade is a major challenge. And I think the administration is doing a good job of trying to articulate this dispassionately, empirically. And I think they're doing this through things like the China report. Now, politically and diplomatically, how well is the United States doing? Well, they're, they're doing some things right, and they're trying to um, tread water on other areas. So if we're operating on Joe Nye's multiple chessboards, where we're saying, look, is w whatever the military dimension of this relationship is in the Indo-Pacific, that's not all people in the Indo-Pacific see or care about. 
Um, and if we don't have an economic posture, a trade strategy, a technology strategy um, to, to complement our military deterrent capabilities and presence and defense capabilities building uh, efforts with, with the partners and allies, then we're going to still lose ground on this multiple chessboard game. And that's where I think, if you think about 10 years ago, President Obama going to Australia, giving a speech to the, the parliament, where he said, in the Asia Pacific in the 21st century, the United States of America is all in. And then he articulated a trade policy, articulated a military policy. Biden can't do that right now with trade. He, you know, we are about to enter two major um, multilateral trade agreements in this region uh, in which China's applied for the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and RCEP, the Regional uh, Comprehensive Economic Partnership, China's part of, United States is part of neither one of those. Right. So we're, we're left with the Pentagon and the military in our big stick. And there, at least we are um, talking about the kinds of systems we need, but the resources are not there. And we're trying to run both a long-term technology competition when we're, when we're still falling short of what I think Tom was alluding to again, the short-term deterrent capabilities that are required um, to prevent China from thinking that they can seize this opportunity, make a fait accompli over Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, or elsewhere. Tom? Yeah, look, I I would agree with that. I would I, I would think there you know there are there are some uh, there are some bright spots here, and I think AUKUS you know is one. Um, I think the you know commitment of the U.S., British, and and Australian governments to deepening uh, technology collab collaboration, first off, in and of itself, sends a very strong signal. Um, now, I think we at this point we need to make sure that 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 uh, actually bears fruit and bears fruit in a time frame, not you know sometime in the mid to late 2030s, but but starting now. I think there also have been some very strong, by historical standards, statements uh, from the Japanese government, from senior Australian uh, government officials, just about you know, what their interests are in the region to include Taiwan. And I think those are the types of things that, you know, that, that have uh, an immediate impact, uh, even as we seek to bolster our capabilities in a number of areas. Uh, let me, Tom, uh, turn uh, to uh, you on the question of, uh, of, of strategy and how Washington has to adjust uh, accordingly. You're among m many folks who, uh, or I said, select number of folks who've been briefed on the NDS. So I don't want to bring you at all uh, in, into that part of, uh, the, of the discussion. But this is kind of a two-part problem, right? As we were joking before we got started, one of uh, history's great strategists, Iron Mike Tyson, uh, always said everybody's got a strategy until they get punched in the mouth, right? So we, we have a twofold problem. How, how do the national defense strategy, national security strategy, Indo-Pacific strategy, and nuclear posture review have to be shaped by what the Chinese are doing, right? Because you need that four-year, eight-year, 12-year template while at the same time accommodating something which is likely in a much shorter span, right? I mean, the Chinese are kind of grabbing this knob and, and, and raising the volume in that three-month, six-month, nine-month timeframe well before any, you know, the, or even you can plug it into a strategy at that point, right? Talk to us about the duality of this and, and how we get it right, accepting that in 2018, we did a pretty good national security strategy. It's just we didn't really follow it. Yeah, look, uh, you know, obviously I'm a 
you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of, uh, of strategy, but I'm an even bigger fan of implementation. And I think, you know, as you just alluded to, I think the, the bigger issue is, is actually not what we, we say or plan to do, but what we actually do. And I think uh, one of the kind of crying needs that the department has is to, is to build intellectual capital and build intellectual capital on, you know, of, of two varieties. One, certainly uh, on China. We go back to, uh, back to the Cold War. You know, we, we, don't, we don't have a, a 1970s or 1980s uh, understanding of, uh, of China as a, as a competitor. In other words, our, our understanding of China as a competitor is not, not uh, similar to the, the understanding we had of the Soviet Union as a competitor in the 1970s or, or 80s, probably more like 1940s, 1950s. So we need to continue to build uh, intellectual capital on, on China to, to answer the, the question that you first posed to us. <laughs> what is the Chinese Communist Party leadership up to? We also need to build intellectual capital across the department on the character of contemporary war. Uh, we have a, you know, a, a, a military, we have a civil service that with precious few exceptions uh, came, you know, came into government after the end of the Cold War and after the most recent period that we took the prospect of great power conflict seriously. This is a, a generation shaped by counterinsurgency uh, um, stability operations, things like that. And uh, we need to develop, you know, a cadre of, of officers, of public servants who understand great power competition and also understand what contemporary warfare is likely to entail. And that includes, you know, the, the, the need for planning, the need for implementation, the need for mobilization, all sorts of things that we've we've really uh, are, are out of our uh, out of our bloodstream because we haven't had to think about them for for several decades. And um, how do we get that all reflected in these strategies quickly enough? I mean, is there a danger that events are moving faster than the strategies will be able to accommodate them, or does that not really matter? I, look, I think it 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 um, I hate to say it, but I mean, I think for for what I'm talking about, the these you know these strategies uh, themselves, I mean, the documents are secondary to leadership and, you know, uniformed civilian leadership of the department. Um, now strategies can become a way for leadership to express, you know, express their, uh, their desires and express priorities. But the main thing is leadership. And the, the main thing is for the civilian uniformed leadership of the department to demonstrate its seriousness about, uh, about the challenge that we face and seriousness to do the things that need to be done to better position ourselves uh, in that in that environment. Patrick, your your sense on all that? No, I agree with what Tom is saying. I think one of the uh, key attributes for the United States right now is the focus on allies and partners. We have to make those work. And and Tom rightly uh, called out AUKUS, the Australia UK US agreement, uh, as well as the quadrilateral security dialogue. Um, these are the kinds of minilateral uh, and alliance and partner relationships that we now need to um, get serious about um, and not just take them for uh, happy diplomacy, but actually getting purposeful, strategic uh, sort of goals met. 
I'm struck by uh, a couple of things here in terms of history, because, you know, General Milley uh, has uh, sounded the toxins on on the concern here over things like the, the, the hypersonic test from China. He called it a near Sputnik moment. And for me, he's been criticized that. But for me, it was actually a, an apt analogy because he was alluding to the, obviously the 1957 Soviet satellite launch into orbit that catalyzed a space race, sparked fears of a missile gap. Um, and it seems to me we are in that kind of a, a moment, um, not because of that one test, but but that test as an expression of this challenge that we're in with Chinese competition. The Chinese, um, you know, and by the way, in 57, that's when Henry Kissinger published that famous Council on Foreign Relations study, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, in which he, he said, the mere assembling of overwhelming power is meaningless if, we cannot, if it cannot be brought to bear on the issues actually in dispute. So that's the challenge for us in terms of our alliances and partnerships. Can we harness them and mobilize them into purposeful action to both deter Chinese adventurism and aggression and to compete with China uh, when it stops short of using force. And that's, that is the key strategic challenge this decade and the decades to come. Um, uh, Tom, I mean, the point that you made about the readjusting of the entire apparatus, right, to get people's heads wrapped around the problem, right? The advantage of World War II is we went from one great power hot war into a great power confrontation, right? So we were in the idea of big, we were in a mindset of big ideas and getting, trying to get big things done and, you know, trying to move quickly um, in, in the wake of that. Whereas you're saying that the challenge now is, 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 is far more nuanced, right? A lot of these are um, not to overwrought the, the gray rhino element of this, these are not black swans coming at us. We've been tracking this. You and I have been talking about this. The late, great Andy Marshall was talking about these things like 20 years ago, 30 years ago almost, in terms of what the futures of warfare were. And he was derided for them, to be perfectly honest. Um, whereas on almost every single count, Andy was right. Um, right. So these are gray rhinos coming at us. Why, why is it that we're you know, I mean, does a two-ton rhino have to hit you in the head for you to go, oh, wow, rhino? Don't we have to get better at sort of being like, holy crap, we should pay attention to that, right? Constant bearing, decreasing range never ends well. No, that's absolutely right. But I, you know, I, again, I go to the, you know, the, the, the lived experience of so many in the Defense Department, civilian and military over the last 20 years. It, it hasn't been uh, dealing with uh, China, despite you know, despite uh, the, the the many warnings and the many many concerns, you know, going back um, to the early early two thousands, um, their lived experience has been Middle East counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, and so um, just just as I think we have to have a little bit of empathy uh, with those British and and French officers. Uh, the veterans of World War One who grew up thinking that the next war was was just going to be a repeat of, of World War One. Uh, we should also have a little bit of empathy with our, our current generation, which you know every, every day is going to be a, a, about counterinsurgency. Um, but we need to move on from that, and again, that takes leadership. And look, there maybe the better analogy is to the uh, to the interwar period, right? So Army and Navy planners identified uh, Imperial Japan as an adversary. Really, at the at the at the at the um, at the onset of the twentieth century, uh, 
there was the beginnings of War Plan Orange, but then it was really the 1930s and particularly the second half of the 1930s where you know, the military really got itself into fighting shape. The officer corps shook itself out. Planning really, you know, really kicked into gear. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's, uh, hopefully, that's, that's, that's the better, uh, that's the better analogy. Because at least in that case, we, we did have time. If we get this right, what do the key documents say, right? Putting aside the execution, right? There will be a large discussion on uh, write the language, right? It gets, it starts in Washington, a Talmudic debate, uh, right? Uh, those on the right will say, you know, oh, it's, it's not strong enough. It, it doesn't talk enough about capabilities. It's not specific enough. The left will say, oh, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's too muscular. And, you know, and we end up talking past one another. In order to be able to get this right, what do these documents have to say at their core, um, getting beyond what we want to say for execution as, as everybody looks at what they say, and Tom, want to get get your sense as well before I turn the conversation to a brief nuclear exchange, nuclear exchange, nuclear discussion. Go ahead, Patrick. Well, the documents have to articulate why competition is not necessarily conflict, um, and why it's necessary. Because the Chinese right now have an, a full court press on trying to denigrate the term competition when we use it. They're trying to conflate it with confrontation and conflict. Um, and then they're trying to force us and allies and partners into accepting cooperation on their terms. That is not acceptable. It's not going to happen. But these documents have to make the case for our allies and partners um, on this issue um, so that when China intensifies the tensions with the United States, let's say over Taiwan or over the South China Sea, our allies and partners don't buckle. They don't immediately run toward Chinese inducements and accept their blandishments, but rather uh, they stick with us and they stick with a, a rules-based system. Um, we have to make sure that we can articulate our, our values and how they um, differ from China. China's building the China dream. That, that's fine for the Chinese. What about the rest of the world? Um, when I heard Ash Carter give a very good talk at a RAND program uh, just uh, several days ago, uh, the former Secretary of Defense talked about the conflict between our universalist um, convictions, the fact that we do have these liberal Western values um, and see things in universal terms, and the Chinese are, are seeing things in pretty Sinocentric terms. Well, um, the answer is not China's self-isolation, which is where they're driving. We, we still, we, we may not be moving toward convergence, but we still have to have engagement with China uh, to prevent some worse uh, sort of outcase. Um, but these documents have to make the case for our values, for competition, well-run, um, for our conviction that we will stand by allies and partners. We're not going to cut and run. And then finally, it has to stand up for real capabilities. They have to lead to, it's the, what Tom was talking about, implementation is going to be the key there. You know, the proof is in the pudding, I think President Biden likes to say. Um, we're going to have to have real capabilities to back up these, these fine words and strategic concepts. Well, may I just have one follow on that though, right? I mean, if we listen to some of the internal conversation of the Pentagon being led by Dr. Kath Hicks, the Deputy Defense Secretary, is don't keep talking about strategic competition. Don't use that word. Don't use that phrase. I mean, doesn't that sort of play into what it is that the Chinese want us to be doing as opposed to be clear about what the adversary and the challenge is and the, the needs are? 
well, we have to be talking about competition. We have to be talking about cooperation. <laughs> you know, again, take the Chinese dialectic and, and let's use it ourselves because you have to manage this relationship. Ultimately, what we're talking about is trying to manage a dynamic strategic equilibrium um, that's not staying uh, still. Um, and um, neither China nor the United States prefers to see this go into the direction of conflict, but we have to be prepared for that as well. And being prepared for it hopefully helps us you know, protect the, the peace and, and, and stability. So it is this um, uncomfortable dialectic that we are, we are stuck in. That is the world we're in. Um, um, so I, I doubt that the deputy secretary says never use the word strategic competition. Um, in, in, feed, in, in case these documents definitely refer to good deal of competition. And I hear it from senior officials all the time from the Biden administration. Um, so there's no doubt we're in a competition with China. The question is whether it's simply a strategic competition with China or whether we're also in a, a, a world of where there is still cooperation necessary and possible. Tom? Well, look, when it comes to the, the national security strategy, I actually think the, uh, you know, the Trump administration's national security strategy did, a, did an excellent job of describing the multidimensional challenge that we face from, from China and also from Russia. And so I think part, look, part of this is um, taking this conversation beyond the swamp, beyond Washington, D.C., or beyond the uh, Acela Corridor, you know, to the American people. Because I think, you know, their, their understanding of what this is all about is in some ways, um, you know, less, you know, less, uh, less salient, right, than, than uh, less tangible than, than uh, what the, some of the conversations that are going on here. So I think there needs to be a dimension that speaks to the American, American people. And that's primarily kind of in the national security strategy. When it comes to national defense strategy, I think what's most important is uh, a sense of urgency and a sense of what needs to be done in very tangible ways, you know, in, in, in very specific areas. Uh, and so the, I think the era of hand-waving this, of consigning this to the indefinite future uh, is over. You know, it's, it's, time, it's time for action. Uh, we really do need to get this right. Um, let me uh, very quickly go into a uh, lightning uh, round with with uh, both of you. Um, the United States has been racked, obviously, right? I mean, a, a surprisingly large portion of the population don't believe in the outcome of the 2020 elections. Um, we have very passionate notes written by people who are leaving the U.S. military saying, I will not be forced uh, to take vaccinations. I, I don't think be, you know, it's a democracy and you, all of us, I think, have been in a position where we've had to take a lot of shots we may not have wanted to take because that's what you had to do. It's not a democracy, uh, right? All of these, um, you know, there is a concern that all of this plays, you know, the, the poor American performance in the face of the pandemic, right? That the United States is just sort of not ready for prime time. And, and these things indicate, right? If you can't get your military members, you know, if you have to force them to take vaccinations and even then they don't want to take vaccinations, it, you know, it's, it's very hard to see that they're going to follow more complicated orders uh, that that might get them in, in trouble. Are all of these things sending uh, the wrong signal and then also give you guys an opportunity to talk uh, because time is short. Uh, about whatever you guys want to say on nuclear and where we need to end up, because we are in a, a new nuclear age, and it's not abundantly clear to me that we have our minds wrapped around strategically getting back into that mindset 
you know, like what, what does this look like? We used to practice this at a tactical, at a strategic level involving the president directly in war games. And it's, it's not clear to me people are spending enough time thinking about nuclear strategy. Let's put it that way. Patrick, why don't you start us off? Well, as my old, uh, my late father-in-law said, uh, results count. So in our democracy, uh, we have to have results. Um, whatever else we're doing, dissent is is welcome. Uh, it's part of our democratic process. Uh, we're famously a messy process, but still better than the others in terms of representing the voice. In the social media world age and the information age we live in, everybody's voice is heard simultaneously all the time. And it sounds more discordant probably than we're used to because of that fact. Um, we don't know whether there was an equal amount of dissent before. Um, I think, I think um, it's still preferable to listening to the Chinese go on and on and on in the Indo-Pacific region about how the Americans are the troublemaker and the Chinese have no um, agency whatsoever in the problems of the region or in the tilting of the military balance or in creating tensions with Taiwan or with neighbors. Um, and I think people around the world and in the region see the difference. They know the difference. So they're going back to that question, can American democracy deliver? And I think that's where we need to make sure that our institutions um, can come back to a level of bipartisan support for national security, that security for the nation should stop at the water's, you know, you know, at the water's edge, and that we ought to be able to, an international policy, um, fashion a sufficiently robust um, national security posture. And that's going to be the test for us. And on nuclear? Uh, on the nuclear issue, um, we still live in a mad world, um, and it's going to continue to uh, operate. But we have to make sure we have credible nuclear forces of sufficient size um, and that we communicate that ability. We shouldn't adopt a no first use policy, obviously, because that has no um, direct tangible benefit and could undermine uh, allied uh, sort of belief in our extended deterrence. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we don't want to keep the bar very high on uh, the use of nuclear weapons. So we're going to have to straddle that as well in terms of uh, making sure that we're uh, against using nuclear weapons as a general principle, on the other hand. Um, if we have to protect our interests and our in the interests of our allies and partners, we will use all means at our disposal. Tom, look on 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 you know American democracy. I would say uh, you know authoritarian regimes have uh, have a horrible track record of uh, of assessing the willpower, the strength. The resilience of democracies. <laughs> uh, you know, authoritarians look at us and they see vulnerability, they see division, uh, and yet the, the the performance of democracies, when actually you know uh, pushed to their limit, is actually quite strong. And so I, I would, uh, you know, that's that's my my, my counsel to the uh, Central Military Commission would be to read read your history uh, about what happens to democracies when they're put under under pressure. You know, to as to the point of nuclear weapons, I think it's it's a subset of this uh, of this intellectual capital that needs to be built or, or, or rebuilt, right? Those of us uh, who grew of age during the Cold War and and studied strategic studies during the Cold War, right? Nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence, nuclear strategy was was front and center. That sort of uh, you know fell off the table after uh, after the Cold War, but of course, nuclear weapons didn't go away and. Uh, uh, and nuclear deterrence didn't go away. So part of that that challenge of rebuilding that we face now, not just you know in in the academy and and in our society, but also 
among the uh, the civil service and and uh, military services is rebuilding that understanding of uh, of nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence and the, the role that they play uh, in the 21st century because you know our, our adversaries never went to sleep on that <laughs> uh, and so you know again it's another area where we're playing from behind and we need to make up ground. Guys, uh, thanks so very much for joining uh, joining me today. Uh, absolutely great conversation. Thanks very much. Look forward to having you back on uh, again soon uh, to keep it uh, moving forward. And Tom, thanks very much for training and teaching a new generation to be smarter about this, right? I, I think, um, you know, and, and Patrick, you as well through your writings and exchanges uh, and engagement, uh, because I think raising a, a new generation that is better than the, or as good as the older generation is absolutely integral. And, and we could suggest maybe the older generation was not as good as it should have been because we're a little bit behind the eight ball now. So guys, thanks so very, very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Vago, and thank you for bringing and allowing these kind of discussions to happen. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.